Hi, this is Amy Skye, and I'm a singer, a songwriter, and record producer, and you are listening to Talking Blues. So, in your mind, I know you're all of singer, songwriter, and producer, but does one take precedent over the other? I mean, if I if I could only do one thing for the rest of my life, it would be writing. But um, there's just different points in my life when one or the other I pay more focus to. And um, <laughs> I was talking to a, a fellow creative friend of mine the other day. I said, I think there's something like a kind of ADD that's like creative ADD where like you can only be so interested in one thing for a certain amount of time and then you just got to switch it up. <laughs> but so I, I kind of hop around, but not like every day, but just I go through phases. I, I think a lot of people just automatically assume it's one and the same, but it's quite a different craft to be able to write a song and to be able to perform a song. Yes. Um, I think you write maybe a different kind of song if you're also a performer. And there's writing for yourself, and then there's writing for other people, and then there's writing for a project. Like, I don't know if you want to jump right into what I'm writing now, but it's a whole other thing, actually even a fourth thing that I'm doing that that kind of involves a little of all of it. Wow. Okay, so I do want to get into that. But I want to start at the beginning, because I know that you started playing classical piano very early. I do some work with the Royal Conservatory of Music. So I, I've worked with young kids and I'm always amazed that some of them get into it because at a very young age, they want to play the piano or whatever. And others are kind of told by their parents to start playing music and then they grow to love it. Does that describe you in one way or the other? Uh, well, <clears throat> I didn't... I mean, my earliest memories are crawling up to the little baby grand piano we have in our house. I'm, I, I, I may have been three or even two and making noise, but making my own noise, finding how to make my own melodies was just one of some of my earliest memories. So, uh, but when I was four, I saw a picture of a, uh, a little boy playing a clarinet and I just, I was like, my mother said it's one of the only tantrums I ever had. I lay down in front of her door and said, you have to give me those lessons. I have to learn how to do that. And I don't know why it was clarinet. I think he was just making music, honestly, but I was four. So clarinet was not right the thing just yet. And I will say, I there's a lot of music in my family, a lot. No one um, on my mother's side was professional musician, but very gifted amateur musicians. Um, Your mother was very musical. She was extremely musical and, and literally like lived for music. Music was playing every hour of every day. My mother was a culture vulture uh, in every domain, music, opera, Broadway, classical, you know, uh, concerts, everything. Uh, and and her, mo- her mother was also very musical and evidently had a beautiful voice. And, and her father was very musical. We have pictures of him playing mandolin. They were, they were from Russia. So they did like Russian folk music. Um, so anyway, at four, I begged for music lessons and um, you work with the Royal Conservatory. My mother's uncle, my great uncle, was a man named Boris Berlin, who is sort of, he wrote all those books, those uh, how, to, 
Are you are you in Canada? I'm sorry, I don't know. I'm actually in Toronto. Yes. Okay. So if you studied music at the conservatory from 1960 on, you probably learned to play piano with a series of books called ABC by Boris Berlin. And that was my uncle. And he was one of the most revered and um, uh, legendary piano teachers in the country. And he also was very involved in setting up all the adjudication and the exams. And uh, he was, so anyway, he, we had him in the family. He's not my blood. Uh, He was married to my aunt, but he sort of set the tone for how seriously you took music in our family. So my mom called him up, like, Amy wants to take music lessons. She's four, wants to play clarinet. And he's like, well, I think she's a little young for that. So he suggested I start on recorder. Uh, And then I studied recorder with um, also a man, I believe he's still alive, who's kind of like the father of early music in Canada. His name is Hugh Orr. And he had an early music, when I say early, I mean Renaissance Baroque music studio on on Eglinton. So I studied recorder like very seriously, not like in school where you get an acquired. I was like, I studied, he would study the, you know, clarinet for eight years. And I played all the different sizes of recorder and I played in quartets. And in his studio, all the walls were lined with dozens of early music instruments, um, crumb horns and all kinds of, you know, wind instruments. And, and he had a cello and he had a harpsichord, a real harpsichord. So um, I was fascinated with the cello. And so I, I, I played solo. I played in ensembles where he would accompany on the harpsichord or he would play the bass on the cello. And uh, when I was in grade four at school, the, you know, in those days, they had string programs in school, and you got to choose. And I said, I want to play the cello. So for a couple of years, I, I took both. And then when I was nine, no, I started when I was nine. When I was 12, I dropped recorder. So I started recorder from like four to 12. Like, I I can wail on the recorder. I still record on it, you know. And and I was too shy to say, like, I don't really want to play recorder. I want to play like an orchestral instrument, you know. But I did. What was amazing about the ensembles where it really developed my ear for harmony and counterpoint. Because from a very early age, I'm playing four part harmony, I'm playing one part and I'm hearing the other three parts, you know? So um, that was very influential on me. Um, And at the age of 12, I switched to cello as my major instrument, studied that privately. uh, And that's the instrument that I um, got accepted to the University of Toronto on uh, for the, the Faculty of Music. So I was a fairly accomplished cello player. But never stopped playing piano. I never took piano lessons. I thought piano was just way too boring because it didn't wasn't expressive enough for me. I liked vibrato. I liked tone. I liked dynam- dynamics. So then, um, uh, but I taught myself piano, which I played by ear. And this is really interesting because I, I couldn't read piano music. I could read it, but I, I'd much rather play by ear. But I could read anything on the cello, but I couldn't play. I couldn't improvise on the cello. So I would make stuff up on the piano because I wasn't tied to the page. But with the cello, I could only play what I was reading. So it was like two parts of my brain, right? And um, and then um, when I was 11, my sister got three records, which changed my life. Um, Carol King's Tapestry, James Taylor's Sweet Baby James, and Cat Stevens' Tea for the Tiller Man. Three great albums. Amazing albums. But here's the thing that really changed my life. I saw that Carol King wrote, You've Got a Friend. And then I saw that James Taylor recorded, You've Got a Friend. And that was like it. That was like that moment, like, that's what I want to do. I want to write songs for other people. But in my cello books, all, I didn't see any girls 
I didn't see any girls writing. There was no like Betty Beethoven, you know? And I thought, and I'm young, like I'm 11. And I don't know what's going on. And I'm thinking, well, maybe girls aren't allowed to write music. So I, I kept writing, but uh, I thought maybe they weren't allowed to write classical music. Like it's weird the things you think, right? Yeah. But I, then I saw Carol King, nice curly haired Jewish girl like me, playing piano, singing. She wasn't even that good a singer. Other people were recording her songs. And I'm like, okay, I'm allowed to do that. And that's when I started writing songs. When So it sounds like you, your love for music came instantly. Oh, like yeah. You, okay, so when you were fiddling around with the piano, you loved it. When you started playing the recorder, did you fall in love with the recorder very quickly? I fell in love with the music. I mean, recorder is easy to play, easy to learn. I loved the pieces. I loved I loved being virtuosic. I loved conquering the technical aspect of it, like being good at something. So there's a difference between playing the recorder or the cello and composing a piece of music. And so when you made that connection that you can write music and other people can play it, and I want to do that, what did you imagine that to be? Well, to be honest, um, when I first, I didn't start singing till I was 13. I thought singing was like a bore. Who wants to sing? Like, I know, like you want to like master an instrument. You want to like, not be able to play something and then you can play it. Um, and, and like I said, classical, we didn't listen to popular music in our house. We only listened to pretty much classical. And so to me, I wanted to be Beethoven. Like I wanted to write symphonies, you know, I wanted to write, I wanted like the cello kids at school to play my pieces, you know? Uh, and I actually, I, I couldn't be bothered with music theory at that point. So I would write out um, pieces in with the alphabet. Like I would make a little code for myself, the alphabet. So, and I would, I would go to the piano. I would write what they were called sonatas. Right. And like, nobody taught me. I was just like, okay, this sounds good with this. And my older sister was playing piano. So I sort of, by ear, I would hear that there was counterpoint and the left hand would do something different from the right hand. And I just used to write my own sonatas. And I really, um, I, I think at a certain point I was like, I want, I'd like to write, you know, symphonies or then in my teens, I was sort of like, maybe I want to score films you know, it was um, being a singer songwriter was not not really like it was fun, but I didn't think I thought there was something more for me than that because I didn't really sing at that point. OK, so what, at the age of 13, when you started singing, what happened? Um, well, what happened was I had a bat mitzvah where you have to sing. Okay. And um, look, we I sang right. but to me. You, anyone can sing. You open your mouth, you sing. Like I, you know, and I didn't really like opera, so I was like, yeah, anybody can sing, you know. But when I actually perform, like in front of people singing, and plus, you know, at the at the synagogue, the cantors are like, well, you got a good voice, you can actually sing in tune, you know. And um, also, I think, you know, when you're 13, you sort of like, sort of hormonally become different. I think when I was young, I just said I had a little soft voice, and when I was 13, I discovered my chest voice. And then that was interesting to me. And also listening to, you know, starting to listen to like the Carol Kings and the, and the Carpenters and stuff like that. So then, um, and alongside, I also wrote poetry. Always wrote. I remember writing po poetry as early as I was seven, because I remember figuring out that seven rhymed with heaven. So I know I was writing <laughs> <laughs> as early as seven. Um, and so, yeah. And so I sort of had like a split personality. I, I'd come home from school. I'd had to do my cello practicing. And, but then I had, then I also got a guitar. And so then I was like, once I, you know, my, my half hour, hour of cello practice, and then I would like write 
songs and on the guitar, the piano. And um, I think when I got into high school and I met a bunch of other um, like teenage musicians and we would start jamming on the weekends, that's when I, I think the idea of performing really gelled. And then, and then I, then I still, I wasn't sure. I mean, that was like in the seventies when there wasn't much of a music industry here. So I had no idea how you did any of those things, you know. But then you decided to go to U of T and go for music, I, I presume composition. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. But by the time I went to school, I realized I wanted to compose. Um, cello was my the way I got in, but I, because I'd never studied piano. Um, you really have to have piano skills when you're, you know, doing a degree. So I switched my major to piano uh, in second year. And, and if you've been to the conservatory, I had to get from grade six to grade nine in one year. You can imagine that was tough. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of work, but it was great. It really got some piano chops there. Um, and I, again, when I entered, I was still like, you know, singing, I was performing in bands and stuff, but I still thought maybe I would go for, um, maybe film scoring. Uh, but then, and, and I was a theory and composition major and which was amazing. Cause I, I had, I was actually, actually I was a theory major and a composition minor. So I did tons of analysis classes, which is amazing when you need to learn to write in other genres later. Like I just later in life, when I moved to Nashville, I was writing country songs and I've written, you know, R and B and like rock and whatever. I could just listen and I could analyze it and I could figure out like how to hop from genre to genre. And I really, that comes to me from like studying all the analysis that I did, train my ears. So when you graduate from university, at this point, do you know that you want to be a performer or do you know that yeah. you want to be a songwriter? By the time I went to university, I was, I was gigging all the time in different bands and clubs. And yeah, I definitely knew I wanted to be a singer songwriter. Um, I was like, I'd made up my mind. And that was going to be, that's what it was. But the road took you more into songwriting at first. I don't know if it was by choice or well, okay, you were hired so, as a songwriter. Well, yes and no. So you have a blues background. So you probably know about Ronnie Hawkins, Rompin' Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah. So um, I got a gig singing a background vocals for Ronnie Hawkins because a friend of mine was, so I was already writing songs for other people. And a friend of mine um, had, was making an album and she recorded a couple of songs that I wrote and she did them on the CBC um, with my songwriting partner, guy I'm still writing with named Stephen McKinnon. And um, the backup singer for Ronnie Hawkins' band, a woman named B.J. Cook, who had just been divorced from David Foster, she heard, um, and they had a huge hit with the song um, in their, their band Skylark, uh, uh, Wild, uh, Wildflower. Yeah. Let her cry for she's a lady. I think yeah. it's... Yeah, Wildfire. Yeah. Wildfire. So she heard my partner play our song, and he's an amazing piano player who very similar kind of to David Foster, that kind of pop, slight jazz, real serious chops. And she asked him to write with her, and he gave her our demo tape, and she, and she had a daughter named Amy Skylark Foster. And my name was Amy Sky, and she was like, and she she was supposed to go on the road with Ronnie Hawkins, and but she had an eight year old daughter, like David Foster's oldest daughter, Amy Foster, and so she got me the gig singing with Ronnie Hawkins. So like, my songwriting got her attention, but it was my singing that got me the gig. So I I, I auditioned for Ronnie Hawkins, and this is funny. He I, I went down to he was playing a gig in downtown Toronto, 
and the band was playing Kansas City Blues. Go on to Kansas City, right? I didn't, I, at that point, I did not know the blues. And he invited me up on stage and I heard him sing the first verse and I was like, I don't know the words, but I just made, I made him up, right? I just riffed on him. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, I, and he just, after the song, he goes, well, Miss Amy, you, you kind of got that Mavis Staples bang in your voice, you know, because I was, I was a real belter in those days. I, I've become much softer over the, over the years. But so I got the gig. And I toured with him for about eight months and we toured all over Canada and the U S including in Nashville. And, um, Ronnie was, you know, he, he's like, if you're into the blues and if you're in a rock villa, he's a hero. He's one of the originals. He was Elvis Presley. He was an influence of Elvis Presley. It's like Elvis used to come to his gigs and, and he stole like a lot of his moves and, you know, <laughs> so, so like the press came out to our, um, to our gigs and Ronnie, one of the things about him, he he discovered David Foster, he discovered Robbie Robertson, he discovered Beverly D'Angelo. So he was really proud of himself for discovering talent. And the the paper said, Well, who are you discovering? He goes, Well, I got this girl in my band. And he always used to call me a Juilliard trained musician. Like that's all he went to music school, like he went to Juilliard. <laughs> yeah. And he said, and you know, and she's got a hundred hit songs up her sleeve. And so they published that in the paper. And he also said, I, I sung as good as Linda Ronstadt, which who's my hero, by the way. When I heard Linda Ronstadt when I was 15, I was like, that Linda Ronstadt and Bonnie Raitt, that's what I want to do. And Joni Mitchell for the writing. So um, a bunch of talent scouts came out and I, I got a manager and um, he, we were going in and out of Nashville with Ronnie back and forth. And um, on one trip, uh, this manager put me with a really uh, experienced writer named Will in Holyfield who had written a huge hit, among other things, for Anne-Marie called um, Could I Have This Dance? You know, that's a huge song. Mm-hmm. So we wrote a song and, um, you know, it's all who you know. He played it for a producer friend of his. And that producer is a guy named Norrell Wilson, who's passed not too long ago. But Norrell was producing an up-and-coming young little red-headed singer from Oklahoma named Reba McIntyre, her first album for MCA. So he, he thought my song sounded like a Patsy Cline song because it was sort of harmonically sophisticated. And he recorded on her and I was like, it's happening. I wrote a song for like, not just like a local person in Toronto, but like somebody with a record deal, right? And so I was like, I'm leaving the man, I'm moving to Nashville. I want to do, I want to like break my career here. Not really understanding quite how country Nashville was back in 1983, you know? <laughs> So, um, but there was um, a lot of interest in 1983 in Nashville, and there still is, in trying to break a pop artist out of Nashville. There's all this rivalry between Nashville and LA and New York. Like, like LA and New York want to tell Nashville they can discover country artists, and Nashville want to tell LA and New York that they can discover pop artists. And you know, it almost never works. I didn't know that. But I got a record deal, and I got a record deal with RCA at the same time as getting a publishing deal with MCA Music as a staff writer. So that was like a day job that paid my bills. Um, and, um, you know, if you've seen the Carol King musical, Beautiful, if any of you, or if any of you have watched the show Nashville and you see the life of a professional songwriter, it's a like 40 hour a week gig. Like you show up, if you have a publishing deal, you show up at the office, used to in those days before everybody had home studios, you had a little office in a room at the publisher and you show up at 
9.45 and everybody has a coffee in the lobby, by 10 o'clock you're in your room writing and you write till one and normally you write with someone else. Your, your plugger puts you with someone else, you collaborate. And, um, and then you break for lunch and, and all the writers like eat at the same places. So you're all like networking there. And then you go back to, you, you have a 10 and you have a two. Then you go back to, you write from two to, you know, five or six. And, and that's your day, five days a week. When, when you started writing, and, and obviously the fact that somebody took interest in your music um, is proof, but how, what did you think about your own ability to be a songwriter? Like how, how confident were you as a songwriter? What did you think, how, how good did you think you were as a, uh, a songwriter at that point? Well, um, put it this way, um, I, I was enormously prolific. I've been a prolific songwriter for years. Like, I'd write practically every day. And, and, and when I was in Nashville, you had a quota and you had to turn in 20 songs a year. So 20 good songs a year, right? Which means you had to write 50 songs for the band to accept 20. So I knew I was a, I knew I had no issue with, um, creating um when i got around incredible songwriters i realized i had a lot to learn put it that way so there was i've never i never almost ever in my life other than like when personal stuff was blowing up i've never had an issue with writer's block right before i talked to you i was in the studio picking away at the piano right so um it's just never been a question but there's absolutely been times and that I think that I'm not killing it, that I'm writing, but it's not great. You know, I know the difference between good and great. And, and what I've since learned um, is that nobody writes more than two or three unbelievable songs a year, like ones that you would love for the rest of your life. Um, I had a publishing deal for 13 years where I was turning in 20 songs a year. So like, I had to. So what is that? 360 songs. And out of those 360 songs, I'd say there's maybe between 10 and 20 that are like what I consider to be a 10 out of 10. Fortunately for me, my very first record, um, I got my first record deal when I was 22. I got two more record deals over the next nine years and none of them came out because that's another whole story. They weren't right. They weren't me. When I finally produced my own record, chose my own songs, 13 years later, I was 35, after being discovered at 22, I picked 13 amazing songs. And that record went gold. <laughs> it took 13 years to, to get them, you know? So this conjures up a number of questions. One is, when, when, when you record three, two or three albums, thinking that they would be your first... <laughs> second or third album and they don't all come out i don't know how much of that is your decision or how much of that is the record company's decision but what record does that company. do to you as a performer and what does that do to your ego so that's an amazing question and when people ask me for advice about like how to make it in the business um i always say talent is a given but mindset is what will make or break you and we're all insecure. All, all creators are insecure. And, um, but you can, you can learn to have a growth mindset where if things don't work out, you've got to accept that the universe has your back and it's moving you towards the next thing. And you don't know when you're going to step 
into your authentic voice. Some people are lucky. Some people like at the age of 19, like Billie Eilish, like she's there. But let's remember Billie was doing it 24 seven for years before her first record came out, right? So it wasn't like she decided at 16, I'm gonna make my record and there it was. Like her mindset was there, her talent was there and, the, and she had put in her 10,000 hours. So, um, but my mindset very nearly ended my career. And luckily for me, I rallied, but it was tough. So when I lost my RCA deal, major kick in the pants, blow to the stomach, I'm not good enough, I should quit, like that whole thing, right? Then I got another deal with MCA in Nashville, and then same thing happened. Um, and and the reason that the reason they didn't pick up the records is because they would hear my stuff that I wrote that was like the stuff you'd hear now if you hear one of my records. And they would say, they would try and change it. They would say, okay, like in 1983, okay, so you're like that sensitive singer-songwriter kind of thing, but like what's happening now is Pat Benatar and hit me with your best shot. So go write that. So then they'd put me with writers and producers that would make a really bad sounding Pat Benatar record. And then they'd say, oh, that's no good. And I'd be like, I know, why did you make me do that? You know? Did, did you know that they weren't good? That, that the albums weren't really you and that they didn't sound good? Like, I, you know... I did, but I thought they knew what they were doing and what I was told. And, and, you know, and it's not, thank God, it's not really like that anymore because people have so much more agency because there's so much more independence. But in those days, like you didn't have a record deal, you didn't have a career and you had a record deal and you had a manager and you had an A&R person and you had a marketing department and they were all, this is what we want. This is what we can break. And, and by the way, your image also isn't like adult enough. So we want you to like, you know, unbutton your shirt and like look sexy and like that. That's not me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a singer songwriter. I'm not like a, I'm not a rock star like that. But they didn't want to, that's, that's what they wanted. So um, the same thing happened with MCA, only then it wasn't Pat Benatar. It was Laura Branigan. And, and, but the, and so then we thought we got, so the next record, the MCA record, we actually recorded in LA. And we did it as a joint venture with the LA record label. But actually the reason that the MCA record didn't come out was actually not so much that the record wasn't good, which it wasn't, but they probably, they probably would have run with it because there was a couple of hit songs in there, you know, so they probably... But if you know your music industry history, it was the year was 1986 and um, there was an indictment in the payola world. There was that big payola scandal. So all the record companies put a moratorium on signing new acts and, and that was and, and developing new acts. And that was the end of that. What does this do to your songwriting? Like, well, I mean, you had that. So therefore it wasn't like you were starving and, you know, like all your dreams of being shattered because you didn't have anything else to go to. You, you you were still writing songs and being paid for it. But did it affect your songwriting in any way? Well, it. Um, I was very fortunate. I just always got covers. Like I learned how to write commercial songs. I didn't. They weren't necessarily right for me, all of them, but they were right for other artists. And in those days, a lot of artists didn't write, so there was a huge appetite for for content. So, um, but then in LA, an amazing thing happened. I, I actually ended up, you know, so that's why I say you got, <laughs> when the MCA record w was thrown out, I was used to swim every morning. And I remember crying while I was swimming. 
<laughs> and like, I was, you know, was, I was devastated. I was really devastated. Cause you also know that was like a, a two year project and you knew it was going to be another two years to, well, you know, right. but what happened was I ended up staying in Los Angeles, um, getting a really great publishing deal with Warner Chapel and between Warner Chapel and I got a manager, um, we got, and I did some, and I met, met some amazing songwriters and LA was the right place for me to be really for my skill set. Um, I got an amazing record deal with Capitol and that was kind of a golden time. Um, I was finally writing songs that were right for the market that were expressed me. Um, they still really put the screws on me to come out with a hit single. And so I wrote with like, all the hit songwriters. I wrote with Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg, who wrote, you know, Like a Virgin for Madonna. And I wrote with George Merrill and Shannon Rubicam that wrote How Will I Know and uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody for Whitney Houston, you know. And actually the song, I didn't end up recording the song I wrote with them, but I recorded one of their songs. The Tom and Billy song was recorded by Belinda Carlisle. I, it wasn't a great song for me. Um, but it was all great. And I made, I made a really good record. A little bit maybe... You know, some songs I wouldn't have put on, but most of it was great. And then this is another thing that people don't understand about the music industry. The guy that signed me was a man named Tom Wally. His roster was me, Carol King, Bonnie Raitt, and Crowded House. And I was like, okay, this is me. Like, I'm home. This is These are my people. And everyone was really excited. I had a ton of support from the label. Big album budget, big clothing budget, everything. And... Um, then the president of the label and my A&R guy get fired for no reason. Just some, they want to, they want to turn the late, take the label in a different direction. Uh, and capital has a history of corporate instability. They've never really had a, a president who branded the label in a certain way. So they were just always changing. And, um, and so that record, uh, I, I put it out myself some years later, but it wasn't released by capital. Talking about the songwriting, you said that, Going back to when you were hired as a songwriter and you had to produce 20 great songs, knowing the business like you do, because you, you spoke about payola, you, like not necessarily every song that becomes a hit was a great song. And, and often when I talk to musicians, the people who've had success will always say that the hit was mainly based, was made out of the record company pouring a lot of money into it, whether it be promotion or whatever. How do you view songs when you know the reality of the business? And I don't know if you, I know you like a hit, but I don't know if it's about having a hit as opposed to having a great song. So how do you view songs when you, when you write them? Well, again, I was incredibly fortunate in, in the timing of when I finally broke my career because what happened was after Capital, so that was 1989, so seven years I've been signed and dropped by labels right. and I was then 29. I was living in Hollywood, married to Mark. And when you're uh, 29 in Hollywood, that's like being 79 in the rest of the world. Like, <laughs> I, I felt like I really thought that um, I wasn't good enough as a singer uh, or I didn't have what it took as an artist. I, I bought into that um, because I'd been rejected as an artist three times. Right. And my songs were still being recorded. I always had publishing deals. I was always getting songs recorded, you know, Melissa Manchester and Diana Ross and, you know, Olivia Newton, John and like big, big covers. And I'm like, okay, I'm 29. What do I want to do? Well, I don't want to have my feelings hurt anymore. And that's again, why I say mindset. I talked myself out of it. I said, I, I'm not an artist. Clearly I'm not an artist. 
I'm a songwriter. Can I ask, so, how much yeah. are you performing at this point? None, not at all. Okay. Because when you live in an industry town, um, the label was like, do not perform. Um, like I was lucky I got my record deal based on demos. So they had never even seen me perform. <laughs> um, and, but to your point, like they figured I could figure it out, you know, and, uh, um, uh, you know, then, then they, if I could write a hit song, they could break my career because LA is a factory like that. Right. And also you could tell I like, I'm not a manufactured voice and there wasn't really voice manufacturing software back then. Like you either could sing or you couldn't, right. you know? Oh, wait, tell me what, what was your question again? What happened to my songwriting? Or yeah, well, how do you view songwriting? Like when, when it's oh, a, oftentimes so it's songwriting, a... yeah, songwriting was my safe place. So I I still was writing. I loved writing, and um, and I would always still mostly write as if it was for me, um, unless a particular artist asked me to write with them, and that that happened a lot. Um, but I still was writing like from my own experience and and. Uh, uh, just to let you know, like on the Capitol record that you can hear it now on, um, on uh, Spotify and it's called um, a breath of fresh air. I think that's the name of it. It's either a breath of fresh air, or a better place. I can't remember what the title is. <laughs> um, Cause it had, it had anyway. A breath of fresh air. It's a breath of fresh air. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so while I was in the studio making that record, Amy Grant's people wanted my song. This is the love. Barbara Streisand's people wanted my song, um, Until You're Mine Again. Cindy Lauper's people wanted my song, That's What Faith Is For. So I had like the best of both worlds. I'm like, okay. And then the label was like, no, these are our hit songs. These are going to be hits for you. You can't give them away. Of course, the record never came out. So, But I, I felt like I was at the top of my game. And those were songs I'd written for myself, but other people wanted them. I, and I felt in that moment, okay, I'm I have it like these songs are right for me as an artist. The label thinks they're hits. Um, other people want them, so they must be good. And then the world came crashing down. And um, I decided to have a baby. And I decided to be a songwriter. And that was it. But my performing career was over. Um, clearly, nobody could be that bad that they'd be dropped by three labels in, in seven years. And and I just thought, and then you're also in L.A. This is why I, get away. I say mindset. Everybody in L.A. is more talented and better looking than you. Like you just, I was walking down the street one day and I heard a girl say, I've only been in town. I've only been in this city for three hours and I already feel like the ugliest person in town. <laughs> yeah, so, like, so LA is really hard on you in terms of competition and the level of talent. But again, what separates the wheat from the chaff is your mind game. You've got to be, you've got to be insanely driven, have blinders on, not be swayed by the competition, and most importantly, not try and copy somebody else, because you'll always be behind if you're if you're trying to be the second best, whatever, you know. Well, when when you write songs and all these other people are covering it, um, and I would presume as a songwriter that would be what you strive for, but as also an artist that wrote some of those songs for yourself. Does that matter? I mean, so somebody else covers your song. It's not necessarily the way you had pictured it in your head or you would have done it on your album. Is that a compliment? Is that, is that a distraction? 100% a compliment. And remember, my, my world changed when James Taylor recorded Carol King's song, and she recorded it as well. So, like, from the age of 11, like, it doesn't matter if someone else sings your song. You can still sing it. And also, as a classical musician, like, how many people play the same piece over and over? 
and they make it their own. Like to me, the only reason it matters in the pop world, if it's like your song, that's going to make you a star and you know that this, and, and also when I talked about the ratio of like how many great songs you write versus how many songs you write of those great songs, how many songs have that magic where it's your song and your voice and the moment in time when that song is, has cultural relevance, which is what happened to me in 1996 um, with my song, I will take care of you. And yeah, so like, no, only, only a blessing to have other people do my songs. I never had someone do one of my songs and have a hit with it, like a huge hit where I was like, well, now I can't record it, unfortunately. <laughs> what <would I> like <laughs> that? that didn't happen until later. Um, when, you, when you're a staff writer and it's getting recorded by all these other people, you still get paid as a writer, do you not? You don't lose any rights for the songs that you write. No, you still, you retain 100% of your writer's share. And when you're a staff writer, you, you negotiate a piece of your publishing to the publisher, usually 50%. Okay, so you, you give up and decide to have kids. Give what, up performing. Performing. But I kept, I kept writing. Right, sorry. Uh, but what, what made you pursue performing again? Well, that's really interesting. So um, we, in 1990, our daughter Zoe was born, who now is a, a wonderful, wonderful musician. And you have to interview her too, Zoe Sky <laughs> She's um, She's the only one out of your family I haven't interviewed. Yeah, yeah she's, uh, she's got actually a new, a new CD coming out, a new album coming out. Um, and um, what happened was we were living in L.A., but that same writer I told you about, Stephen McKinnon, had become Mark's songwriting partner, and, and Stephen was living in Toronto, where, where Mark and I are both from, even though we met in L.A. So we were spending time in Toronto while Mark was recording here and writing with Stephen, and I started just um, singing in some clubs, because why not? Like, I didn't, you know, first of all, huge independent club scene in Toronto, and where you could also be like a singer-songwriter at clubs. And then... Um, it wasn't an industry town, really. I didn't, plus I didn't care if I was like, you know, uh, seen too much in the clubs because I was like, I'm a mom and I'm writing songs. And so I was really enjoying writing songs. And one of the songs, I sorry, really enjoying performing. I thought being a mother was going to end my performing career, but, but Zoe decided to come into the world on my birthday. And uh, when she did, I was like, that's a metaphor, becoming a mother on your own birthday. And I didn't like write the song, I will take care of you right then, but I was like, there's something here, right? And um, so she was born on September 24th on my birthday. And I got this idea for a life cycle song where all of the events happened on a September afternoon. And um, I always say that song took three years and 20 minutes to write because I got the idea when she was born. I wrote the, had the chorus for a long time. And then after our son Ezra was born, um, a guy, a writer from Vancouver named Dave McKell, he had come to Toronto, we were writing together and I pulled out that chorus and in 20 minutes we'd written the rest of the song and it all just came out. I thought that the idea was great of the site all the life cycle events happening on a September afternoon. But I thought the title wasn't good. The title was, I will take care of you. And I wanted a title like Joni Mitchell's circle game. I wanted like a metaphor or something. Like that. I will take care of you. It was just so, Oh, like so, 
you know, like boring. and titles a big deal for you, right? Do you not base oh, your title everything? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, the the story is that I will take care of you, but I wanted like to end up with I don't know. So anyway, I didn't know, didn't know what I had. So then after Ezra was born, we actually ended up moving back to Toronto from LA in 1993. We started, Mark and I started like a Toronto version of the Bluebird Cafe. Um, and we called it Bluebird North. We did it in conjunction with the Songwriters Association of Canada. And I produced the shows and Mark hosted them and I would perform pretty much at every show. That song, I Will Take Care of You, people went mental for it. And uh, and a lot of people were like, you you need to record, you need to record. And that was 1993. And by 1995, I was like, you know what? Like, you don't need a record deal in Canada. Nobody, you just get a factor fund and you make a record. And I was like, I'm just going to take my 12 favorite songs that I've ever written and record them. And I'm going to put it up myself. I'm a mother. I'm not going to tour. I just... I just wanted a CD with my face on it. I just wanted to believe that I had a good voice. Like, it's crazy when you think what you tell yourself. I thought like I wasn't strong enough to be an artist. I just bought what they had told me, right? Or I didn't have what it took, you know, or whatever it was that you needed. I had had, an, and there was an A&R guy in LA named Don Grierson, who unfortunately passed away about three years ago, but he was famous. He, 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 worked, he had worked for Capital for a long time, uh, not actually when I was there, but he was in the New York office, but he had found what's love got to do with it for Tina Turner. And he found the flame for cheap trick. And he, he like, he's legendary at picking songs. Right. And I, uh, he, he had taken a, he had taken a song of mine for Anne Murray, a couple of songs of mine for Anne Murray. So like, and a few other artists. Um, so I, I sent him a bunch of songs. I said, I need to pick two more songs for my album. And among the two songs I sent him were, where I will take care of you. And he calls me and he goes, oh, you've got to record that song. I said, really? It's like, it's so like, you know, it's it's so Hallmark. And he goes, it made both my daughter and me cry. And her, his daughter was nine years old. So, okay, I'll record it. And this, so now this is a great circling around because when you talk about, can you have a hit with a song that re reflects you, that the record company's not paying payola on, that's, actually that good that people just like it. So what happened was we, in those days, you, in 1996, you sent out the whole CD to the record stations. And I had a, a public, uh, like a record promoter named Linda Nash, incredible woman with the great tenacity. And the first single was a song called Don't Leave Me Alone. And, and they picked that and it was like, it did pretty well, like just good for a first single. Oh, and then we were going to put out, I think, Till You Love Somebody is the second single, but Drew Keith at CHFI in Toronto had played the whole record and he just started playing I Will Take Care of You on the radio. And he just put it on and we weren't promoting it. And the moment he put it on, people started calling the radio station. So CHFI was a chain, right? So he would spin it. And like, you know, when you spin it, it shows up like on a report and he would tell the other people in the chain, just try spinning this. Like, this, this song is like like Cats in the Cradle. Like there's something about this song. So the other stations in the chain started playing it across the country and the record company's like, no, no, no. Okay, record company's run by men. And they're like, that's not a single. That's like a girly song. Like that's not a radio song. It's a ballad and that'll never work. And you need to release like a rock song, you know. But it's what's called a natural record. They just started playing it. People started calling the radio station. 
pulling their cars over to the side of the road and weeping and saying, who is that? And who is that song? So the record company decided to put it out as a single. But the public told the record company. It's not, you know what I'm saying? It was yeah, just yeah. by the vision of that one guy, Drew Keith, who, by the way, I'm going to give him a shout out because he's no longer in the music industry and he now works for Edward Jones and he's my financial manager because he changed my life. <laughs> and he's so, still taking care of your life. Still taking care of me. Um, so uh, not only, so we made a video, we put it out and it really is climbing the charts very, very fast. And then this other thing happens, which I can only describe as kismet. There was a, a musical coming to town called Blood Brothers from England. Um, David Cassidy from the Partridge family was, was the star. Michael Burgess was one of the other stars. And Helen Reddy was supposed to play David Cassidy's mother. And the rest of the company was from London. It was just a summer show. But Helen dropped out three weeks before opening. And um, the uh, they asked Michael Burgess, who do you know that could maybe fill in for her? But it's May and all the prime actresses are booked already. And I'd written a couple of songs for Michael for one of his records. And we'd done a duet together. He goes, well, I know this amazing singer, uh, Amy Sky. I think she could probably act. You should, you know, audition her. And I How did How much acting have you had done? I had done, I had done a fair amount in, in, in high school and university. And, and I, I always, acting was like a passion of mine. So it wasn't, you know, and I'd had some success with it, but hadn't acted for 13 years. Hadn't been on a stage in I don't even know how many years. So I get a call on a Friday night and um, uh, I answer the phone and Michael tells me, you should audition for the show. And I've got two little kids, two and five. And I say, and I, I have a tour because I've got a hit with I Will Take Care of You. I'm doing a club tour and I'm, this is, I'm like, wow, I'm on the radio and I'm touring. I'm not going to like go to England and rehearse a play. So I hang up the phone and uh, Mark says, who is that? I'm like, oh, I not believe it. Michael Burgess wants me to audition for a show at the Royal Alex, but I have to go to England, so I'm not going to do it. Literally, literally Mark was eating and he, he puts down his fork and he goes, well, what did you say? I said, no, I, I got a club tour. I got to, you know, I'm going to play in a, like, for 30 people in Vancouver next week. And Mark says, are you, are you fucking nuts? He says, put a skirt on me. I'll do it. Like, really? Well, what? You're going to take care of the kids when I go to England? He goes, yes, I'll take care of them. Go. Are you, are you nuts? Go do it. And like, I'm 35 now. Okay. So like, I'm not a spring chicken. Uh, and I felt very old. I felt like I'd been in the business for a long time. And uh, I was like, okay. So that was Friday night. Saturday, I, I auditioned for the music director, Rick Fox. And he calls England. He says, yeah, oh yeah, she's got the voice. Um, why don't you see if she can act? So they fly me over on Sunday night. And on the plane... Um, I've done accents before. I've actually done English accents for a couple of roles, but this was a Liverpool accent. I didn't know how to do it. So I actually asked someone on the plane if they knew how to do it. <laughs> and But I, I but I couldn't do it. I, I could do a Cockney accent, though. I had done this dinner theater thing, right? So I mastered the Cockney accent. So, um, which is like auditioning to be a Texan and speaking with a, with a Brooklyn accent. But at least it shows you can like... Do accents. Accent. So I arrive at seven in the morning. I audition at 10 and by 12, I'm being measured for a costume. And so what does this do to your tour though? I had to cancel the tour. Do you, do you think, why is everybody trying to stop me from becoming a performer <laughs> or a musician? 
Well, um, when I when I realized what the opportunity was, I got to England and the show Blood Brothers. Um, first of all, it's the lead in the show. You're on stage, and and the part had been played by Carol King. It had normally was played by pop stars. It had been played by Carol King. It had been played by Kiki D. It had been played by Petula Clark. And I was like, okay, this actually. And my plus, my publicist says, if this thing's a hit, it'll break your recording career. And it's not, it's not like a sideways move. It's just, we can use the, the um, momentum for your publicity. And but it's not exactly. affecting your momentum for the album. Well, actually it broke the album. It broke the album because three weeks later, 16 days later, I'm on, I'm starring in a show with David Cassidy and Michael Burgess. I'm a complete unknown other than like one hit on the two hits on the radio. But my song is now like, top 10 like it's just climbing climbing while i was in the run it went to i think it i think it went to number two i'm not sure if it went to number one but but still it stayed top 40 for 12 years like that song was a massive massive hit and um a hundred thousand people came to see me and i sold my cds in the lobby and i did every media outlet every tv show every radio show and again 1996 it's before the internet really um and so if getting in the newspapers or getting on Canada AM and with David Cassidy and we're singing the anthems at the Blue Jays game. I mean, like the Mervishes, they know how to publicize. I became a star. I was on magazine covers. I was like, I'm a, I was, and I was more than just a pop star. It actually elevated me um, to being a, a leading lady. And I, I, what I also realized was that people in the music industry get treated like shit. <laughs> people in theater, like I had my name, I was Miss Sky to everyone. Like I'm in the music business, I'm like, hey, you. And at the Royal Alex, I'm like, Miss Sky, are you ready, Miss Sky? And let us escort you. And what can we do for you? And, you know, so it was amazing. And from not having performed, other than those Luber North things for years and years, to being on stage every night for four months, my voice got into amazing shape. I learned so much about stage presence and just gravitas and I also watched the other actors who were amazing performers and I it really it really changed my life it changed how I presented my show um and and long story short I'm now writing a Broadway musical I've been and uh and that's was a big effect on me that that show um what does this do to your ego what does this do to your head from from that person who felt rejected to all of a sudden being bombarded by success and opportunity yeah, I was pretty excited. I will say I was very excited. And also because I was 35 and, and, and still on the radio and it was my first album and like I'm going to award shows and nominated for Best New Artist, but all the other Best New Artists are like 25. I'm like, my, I had a huge sense of self because of my family and my wonderful husband. And so I wasn't, it wasn't make or break for me if, it all went away and I just think it's the healthiest it's so 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 hard to break a career with a healthy personal life it's hard to stay keep the healthy personal life but it was amazing because I had an anchor I had a I, I was like I could I and, and I also had an amazingly supportive husband and he's like he wanted me to go for it and uh he supported me and he helped with the kids and you know um but because I knew who I was as a person I was, I was quite grounded. So I didn't, it, it didn't, it's hard for things to go to your head when you go home and your kid tells you you're a poo-poo head, you know, like it <laughs> kind of keeps you, you know, 
Grounded. Okay, I have to ask about one of your songs, which is one of my favorite songs, called Phenomenal Woman. And I come through it through Ruthie Foster, mm. whose version is pretty amazing, and I've heard your version, which is pretty amazing. Tell me about that song, because it's such a powerful song. Oh, great story about Maya Angelou and great story about Ruthie Foster. So um, 1996, as I said, internet wasn't happening, but it started happening. And by 1999, I was getting a lot of, uh, chain letters were really big back then. I got the poem Phenomenal Woman as a chain letter, which was like, if you don't send this to 10 women, you know, whatever. I never did those, but I read the poem and I was like, I printed that. I was like, how is this not a song lyric? Like this is, it must be a song lyric. And I researched it and, and it wasn't. So um, I was working on my third album then. I'd had Cool Rain um, and I had Burnt by the Sun, which had a bunch of hits on it. Um, I, I, from the point we were talking about, from Blood Brothers to the time that I got the Phenomenal One poem, I had dominated adult contemporary for four years. I had one top 10 hit after another. It was very gratifying. It was amazing. And then I was getting ready to make my third album. I had this poem. I'm like, I want to set this poem to music. This is incredible. My manager at the time could not get in touch with, with Maya Angelou. But um, actually, it was 1998. I, wa I was on the Dini Petty show to promote a single from, from uh, Burn by the Sun. And it was a rock song, but like kind of a Sheryl Crow thing. And my hair had been dyed, like I, I cut it short and I dyed it blonde. And I was wearing like leather pants and like a sequin shirt and kind of looking like you no know, rock and roll, right? And Maya Angelou walks into the recording studio. And she was in town to promote a film from uh, for the film festival. And I was like, what? Because we had not been able to get in touch with her, like nothing. And there she is. I'm like, oh, what? So I knock on her dressing room door. And like, the song is all about accepting yourself for your beauty, whether you're overweight or like whatever. And there I am dressed like a skinny little sparkly skank, right? And I'm like, I am not dressed the way I would like to be dressed to meet Maya Angelou, but it's happening. So I knock on her dressing room door and I tell her that I love her poem, Phenomenal Woman, and would love to set it to music. And she kind of looks me up and down like, and I know she's thinking, why are you dressed like a sparkly skate? <laughs> <laughs> but she says, you know, Amy, I've always said people are more alike than unalike. And she took a deep breath and she said, I've been wanting someone to set that poem to music for 20 years and no one has ever asked me. And she wrote down, I had a pen and a paper. She wrote down her number right then and there. And I go on the Deanie Petty show and I talk about what had just happened. And Deanie's like, well, we have to have you back when it happens. And so then I call the guy that I've written, I will take care of you with and ordinary miracles of Dave Pickell. And I think, did we write it in Toronto or Vancouver? I can't remember which city we wrote it in. But we wrote it, and what I decided, God, this is like all coming around. I couldn't decide what kind of music to choose, but um, if I wanted to do like funky or like a ballad or whatever, I said, you know what? To me, this is the 21st century's version of You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman by Carole King. So I chose the same feel, that gospel feel, and, um, and, uh, and, and recorded it. And then when I was promoting the album Phenomenal Woman, I did a festival out in... Um, I think it was Alberta or BC and a folk festival and Ruthie was on the bill and she heard me sing it. 
And, and actually I sung it in a songwriter circle where it was just me playing it on the piano. She asked me if she could record it. I said, sure. And so she, that's how she recorded it. And um, she did a gorgeous version of it. She has a wonderful video of, of her doing it. Looks like she's doing it live. Sounds like she's doing it live. And, um, and then she came to Toronto a few years ago and I got to sing it with her at, at the club. And it was, it was amazing. It was fun. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but before we go, tell me about the new album. Cause I find it interesting that you and your husband, I mean, your whole family writes songs. I don't know if you sit around the dinner table and just discuss music and songs, but we do. For, for, <laughs> I'm sure you do, but, um, for you and your husband who are both great songwriters to decide to pick other people's songs to do in the album he said he sang she sang um how did that come about duets are really hard to write and um first of all mark and i are both more top line people so we're not good writing with each other and we the duet album is really more about how we sing together and um, because how we sing together is a really special thing for us we love the sound of our voices together and up until this album we only did it for fun. Like we'd sing in the car or we'd, you know, help each other out. We've done a few duets in the past, but never like with any pressure. And we just decided to, to, we wanted to capture the chemistry of our vocals together. And we thought it would be fun to take songs that people knew as not duets and show them what two people could do with the melody. And so that's why we did the covers. And then I specifically wrote some songs for us. Um, and then we did one of Mark's songs. We we did not ha we didn't put the pressure on ourselves to write a duet like together because it's just not that's not what we do. That's not how that's not how we roll. We're like supporters for each other, cheerleaders for each other, um, and uh, sounding boards for each other. But we don't like the pressure of having to write together. My final question. Can you just talk about the power of song and what it means to you? It's a, it's everything. M music is everything. Um, music on its own is incredibly powerful. I, I always equate music as like a drug. It can be an upper. It can be a downer. You know, um, it can chill you out. It can cheer you up. But when you add the power of an authentic story, a beautifully rendered lyric to uh, a, a gorgeous melody, um, it can... It, it, it's a spiritual experience. Um, it, it, uh, it can bring meaning to life. It can help ground you in the present, like a meditation. And I think most importantly, it can take you to an emotional place that you maybe is too painful for you to go on your own. But if you go on that journey with someone else, first of all, you feel you're not alone. And second of all, you can sort of vicariously ex express your emotions go to that place that needs attention and healing, and it's also over in three and a half minutes. So so it's an amazing, I just think songs are, are, are really a, a gift from God. Whether I've written or somebody else has written, I hope my songs are that for other people. I know other people's songs are that for me. Well, thank you so much for this time. I really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you, likewise, and thank you for having my family on. Don't forget to have Zoe. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. You too.